You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I would have to say the biggest changes started under the Trump administration with the setting up of the um, the Space Council as well as the space policy directives. I mean, Obama did a lot as well, but what we're seeing is for the first time in years is three consecutive administrations working to continue the previous administration's advancement in space which and policy, which is really exciting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, we have a very special guest. Joining us is Bryce Kennedy, president of the Association of Commercial Space Professionals. Bryce is a space lawyer and a regular contributor to our T-minus daily space podcast right here on the N2K Podcast Network. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Ben, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Bryce Kennedy. He is the president of the Association of Commercial Space Professionals. He also happens to be a space lawyer. And uh, I know we have lots of questions to uh, ask Mr. Kennedy. Bryce, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. Before we dig into our questions here, and I know we have a lot of them, can you share with our audience uh, what is your day-to-day in terms of your uh, professional job? So I run the uh, Association of Commercial Space Professionals. I'm president of that. And um, ACSP, we work to democratize access to space. And right now our focus is on um, regulatory uh, training and education, advocacy, and community building. Gotcha. Well, I want to start off with sort of some basics here, kind of getting a lay of the land. I mean, it's my understanding that uh, recently, I guess since the Biden administration, there's there's been a lot of uh, change and proposals and so on and so forth for uh, space policy in terms of like who's in charge and who has responsibility. Is that an accurate perception on my part? Yeah, definitely. I would have to say the biggest changes started under the Trump administration with the setting up of the um, the Space Council as well as the space policy directives. I mean, Obama did a lot as well, but what we're seeing is for the first time in years is, is three consecutive administrations 
working to continue the previous administration's advancement in space which and policy, which is really exciting. Um, and we haven't seen that in, in decades. So, What sort of changes are we seeing here? What areas are they focused on? Well, with the space policy directives, one of them was the, I can't remember which exactly it was, but um, they were looking for more agile regulation. And so it was like a two for one type of thing where every time, or excuse me, one for one, every time you put a new regulation as it pertained to space, you were supposed to remove another one, which I thought was actually a pretty good idea because a lot of the regulatory framework, pretty archaic, where there wasn't actually a lot of commercial space. The other thing that we're starting to see too is the request by the government, by the industry at large to start to form regulations which include new technologies. So these companies don't have to worry about emerging technologies and whether or not the regulations exist. Because a lot of times, you know, it's funny, you would not think that these companies would want a regulatory framework because they think that they might be able to work inside of a vacuum. But it turns out that it's the opposite effect. Without that regulatory framework, their tech actually oftentimes will not be approved for the license that they're seeking. And so they're now looking, you know, at the discretion of the FAA, FCC, NOAA, Department of State, all, all the different entities that work to help um, the industry for guidance where a lot of times there isn't any. And, and it's becoming a pretty major backlog um, on that front. So we've gone through quite a transformation in terms of who goes into space, right? So 30 years ago, this was a public domain, more or less. Uh, NASA was the major player. But in the last 10 or 15 years, obviously we have SpaceX and other private uh, enterprises ent entering the market. How has that changed the regulatory state and uh, how is that reflected in the new regulations? Uh, yeah, I, I, wish, I wish there was a major change uh, in that reflection. There, there obviously have been some changes and in, in every agency is trying to keep up. But, you know, if you look at the FAA, I forget the original licensing um, for launch and reentry, but they did a sweeping overhaul and they did the part, they now have the part 450, which was supposed to be um, an answer to that where private entities could uh, have a little bit easier time to, to launch in terms of the licensing regime. You see that with the FCC too. There was the uh, originally the Part 25, and then th there's a, a simpler version of that based on the size of the satellite itself. So it was, it was more the new reg was positioned for the new um, small sats. So you know you don't want you don't want a company that's that's only putting up small sats to have to go through the burden of you know a major satellite uh, infrastructure as say uh, like I said uh, that would fall under a Part 25. So we're seeing costs reduced for the reduce for the licensing as well as some of the timeframes as well. NOAA actually had one of the biggest changes under Kevin O'Connell um, when he was at Commerce. And to me, I wish the other agencies would kind of look at NOAA as the um, kind of gold standard because they essentially slashed huge portions of the overall mechanisms that would trigger different licensing techniques, and they put them into three tiers. And so if you fall into one of these tiers, your license difficulty is based on that tier, which I think is a really good idea. 
When it comes to the various players uh, in in the the aerospace industry, I'm thinking of all these upstarts that we've had. You know, as Ben mentioned, you know, SpaceX, uh, companies like that. How are the established players in terms of welcoming them, or perhaps you know, using their their position as an established player to do some gatekeeping? So I, I worked for. Um, a startup law firm, a space startup law firm called Aegis Space Law before I transitioned to ACSP. And we saw a David and Goliath type thing often with um, different licensing regimes, essentially with companies that are trying to do XYZ and the big behemoths would often try to use, you know, quote unquote precedent or all these other different mechanisms to block them. And in the past, that has worked. But now we're seeing, um, again, a lot more companies that are agile, that have really good attorneys. They're starting to understand not only with their firms themselves, but in their companies, how these regulatory systems work. So we're starting to see some movement back towards the smaller guys being able to I wouldn't say have as much power, but a lot more say. The other thing, too, are the um, the NPRMs, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. A lot of companies, the smaller companies, don't realize that they have a lot of say in those NPRMs on different um, topics that I don't think that they realize how powerful they are. So that's an, that's an opportunity, too, that companies can start kind of combating these bigger um, entities. Can I ask a bunch of dumb questions about space law? Yeah, please. Okay. Dave, is that okay? Please. It's what you do best. All right, because I want to get really <laughs> down to basics here. What governs space? What, who is the governing authority once we've transcended the surly bonds of Earth and get into the, uh, into the great beyond? China. No. Um, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, we, uh, it is the Outer Space Treaty. 1967, I think. Most nations have signed and ratified it. Um, but the Outer Space Treaty, and you know, it's funny, a lot of people kind of poo-poo the Outer Space Treaty. They think it's just old UN treaty talk that is, you know, not applicable to today's standards. But it still is the governing um, treaty for all of space. And if you read it, it's really, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of scholars have doubled down on the, the, the meaning of, different aspects and different um, articles of it. But on the whole, some of the biggest things are that it is meant for exploratory purposes. You can't have nuclear weapons in space. You can't own a celestial body, which means any planet, asteroid, this, that, the other thing, even though under the Commercial Space Act with Obama, they opened that up to, you can't own it. You can extract resources from it, but you can't own it, just kind of like the ocean. In the open seas, so that is that is the big, major governing thing. And then from there, it also states that any nation that is a participant of the treaty needs to come up with its own governing body or bodies that they are then responsible for overseeing. And so that's where you, you'll see a lot of the language from the Outer Space Treaty in the different sections of the FAA, FCC, NOAA which translates to that authority and those, those overarching themes that are then embedded in our own, our own system. So what happens when Elon Musk decides he wants to colonize Mars? Like, what governing processes come into place here? And what could we do about 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, technically, I think that would still fall under because any any company that launches from the United States still under the Outer Space Treaty, it it is seen as that country doing the thing. So the Outer Space Treaty doesn't look at the company, they look at the country. So it would then be on the U.S. to either stop that, to, you know, carve out another rule that says, oh, we're, you know, colonization isn't claiming any property. All we're doing is we're landing there, we're putting these things. You know, what what does uh, sovereignty really look like? Is it a time period? Is it a certain breadth of land? You know, what what is that? So that is something that um, it would be under the U.S. The other thing is, I don't know if there's really a uh, a body that, you know, we have the liability convention that the Outer Space Treaty references as the the body that, that you can't start bringing those things. You know, we've seen a few accidents that almost happened that would have fallen under the liability convention. But I don't know exactly if we started bringing that territorial suit, what that would look like in terms of, we would like it to be the, outer, the UN, but as we see now, the UN, you know, can't really agree on too much. To a little bit toothless, forward. yeah. Yeah. By the way, I don't think Elon Musk will actually ever colonize Mars. He's totally full of it, but it's an interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting hypothetical. Uh, I mean, you could see something that's not literally that, but still creates those sort of territorial issues. The thing is, that he's full of it. There's no doubt about it. But like, I hate to say, what he's done with SpaceX has re-energized the entire industry in a way that. Uh, you know, we've never seen. I was listening to this podcast with this astronaut. I'm forgetting his name. He was one of the the commanders of the uh, International Space Station for, for a very long time. And he goes, I remember, this is kind of his, I'm paraphrasing him. He goes, I remember when we were at NASA, we would laugh Elon out of the building when he said he would have um, a reusable and landable um, rockets onto pads in the ocean. We just laughed him out of the building. And he goes, and I stopped laughing the minute I saw that land the first time in the ocean. And that's the surprising thing about space is we see a lot of that still, that that mindset where people are actually doing the things that, you know, traditionally get them laughed out of the building. We're going to take a quick break and we will have more from our guest Bryce Kennedy after this message. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Curious, you know, years ago I, I was in uh, the world of broadcast television, and I had befriended a, a satellite engineer. 
And I remember one day uh, he and I were in master control and he was uh, lighting the candle, as they used to say, to you know send our signal up to a communications satellite. And I asked him, you know, what is keeping you from pointing our transmitter at some other satellite and taking its signal down, just stomping on it? And he kind of looked at me quizzically and, and uh, almost in- incredulously and said, we're gentlemen. <laughs> and... I guess I I, I'm the the reason I bring up that story is that I'm curious how much of the goings on in space relies on those sorts of norms and politeness and you know that it's still a domain or or is it still a domain where those sorts of things that are considered quaint in a lot of other domains now do they still hold there? Right. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's becoming less and less because. What we're seeing, especially from different uh, entities like China and and whatnot, is I was listening to another person speak from the DoD, and they were saying that I don't know if it's daily, but they are constantly, constantly thwarting those type of attacks from China and potentially other nations that are making you know a, a business out of bringing down U.S. satellites. I think once you have one player that is actively trying to you know disengage other other country satellites then that gentlemanliness starts to potentially move out of the way i i because you can only say that for so long and then you know we're seeing what china is doing they have um robotic arms coming out of the satellites as well where they can start to reposition other country satellites we have the spoof attacks from the ground we there's there's a bunch of stuff that we're starting to see where you know, I would hate for us to to try to counter those or, or become like them. But after a certain point, once national security is at risk, uh, you know, I think uh, I think a lot of those rules go out the window. Yeah, Ben, what do you see in the next like ten to fifteen years in terms of confronting China's strength in space and how we're going to work that out diplomatically? I mean, what active steps can the U.S. take to counteract that if we even do want to counteract that? According to what I, I read and understand, the way China is approaching this, is, which I think is really smart, um, if I were an enemy of the U.S., I would not do the hand-to-hand combat, not do anything visible that the U.S. citizens could see. Because, you know, the U.S. traditionally is, we're reactive in nature. And when we react, we tend to win. Some would disagree with that, but we... We, when we rack, we, we go pretty hard at it. And so the way that China focuses on it, my father-in-law is an ex-FBI uh, agent. He, he goes, China focuses on the drip while Russia focus, focuses on the smash in terms of stealing. And they're using our own kind of socialization of reactivity against us by having this drip, which means everything that they do, whether it's cybersecurity or IP theft or satellite attacks or all these different things, the U.S. can't see. And so there's not a whole lot of a strong reaction. There are some people obviously pounding the war drums, but for the most part, we don't see it from the citizens at large, I don't think. And so I think the thing that the U.S. could do to really strengthen this is start to move away from the let's have troops on the ground. I was talking to another um, crew at Los Alamos, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're training for drone warfare on the ground and all this other stuff. Well, the way China's doing it is like, well, we don't even need to worry about drone warfare because we're going to attack your um, your platform 
that controls the drones. So we're not even going to let your drones get off the ground. So, you know, it, it, really good thing. But that's where the, if the U.S. can start thinking more in terms of cyber hygiene and, and cybersecurity and really leveraging the strength of that and move away from kind of the old military standard, I think we have a really good chance of doing that. The other thing is I really, really believe in the Artemis Accords. I think having the Artemis Accords, where we have a bunch of nations agree to a set of standards, it's not a treaty, it's not legally binding, but the more and more we start out having countries believe in this overall mission that the U.S. just put out there, it's not leading, we're, we're just, you know, we're kind of holding the container, but anyone can, you know, grow the way that they like. I think the Artemis Accords is probably one of the best mechanisms for uh, thwarting any kind of enemy like that. Where do we stand in terms of legislation? You know, I, I know on the cyber realm, Ben and I always talk about how much it seems that the legislation is lagging behind the industry and lagging behind the technology. Um, is it fair to guess that that's occurring in space as well? It is. It is. It is really fair. We see, we see so many backlogs on. If the U.S. is really doubling down on the commercial side to really differentiate itself from the rest of the world and, and move mountains, then we need to have that legislation that enables quick commerce um, to, to be able to act. And we are not seeing that. We're not seeing that at all. And what scares me, again, is people always ask me, and I'm, I'm not a pessimist by nature. I wouldn't be in space if I was. But I still think it's like, what's it going to take? And... Anytime I've ever seen really massive change, it's always been a disaster, a war, you know, some something that has, again, allowed the U.S. to react in a way that kind of woke them up and um, and moved quickly, for better or for worse. So that is, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of where I think we're heading. Yeah. Ben, last question? Let's make the last one a fun one. We've had a few hearings about UFOs in the United States Congress. The, the videos are somewhat compelling. Are you a believer? <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me say this. Let me say this. Let me say, I'll say this. I'll say I think based on the evidence and, and starting to see, especially with the James Webb telescope, the sheer immensity of vastness of space that we have no idea. I mean, no idea. Like we, it's, it's even hard to comprehend that we are the only organism out there um there there is a potential for uh life out there it's it's kind of silly to think that there is for me yeah all right well uh bryce kennedy is president of the association of commercial space professionals uh bryce thank you so much for taking the time for us we really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com.
that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.